We're starting a series this fall called Alone Together. Okay, Alone Together. By the way, do you guys have handouts? All of you have an outline? If you don't have an outline, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get you some. Yeah, Andy, Ben, like half of you. What happened there? Yeah, slackers. By the way, Nate, I noticed you were wearing shoes tonight. Our bass player was wearing shoes. He's usually shoeless. What was up with that? Yeah. Yeah, it's cooler out. Perfect. Okay, hopefully you have a Bible, too. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you, and I'm not going to take time to pass them out right now, uh, but we'd like you to have a Bible with you as well when you come, just so you can hear and see the Word of God with me. And... uh, Hey, Ben Vanderhoek, could you grab my Bible off the back, <laughs> off the back table there? It's, it's sitting on that black and yellow case. Thank you. I'm up here bible list talking about how you guys all need Bibles with you. Yeah. Do you guys see it back there? Thank you. You can run that up to me. We're starting a series. You got your Bibles. You got your outlines. Check. You've got those good. We're starting a series called Alone Together. Last week, you guys know that we studied, uh, we listened to testimonies from Matt, Deontay, and Sarah. Weren't those awesome, by the way? Man, it was good to worship with those people as they exalted God, as they testified about what God had done in their life. Tonight, we're going to shift gears to more what a normal or average Thursday night is going to look at, look like. It's going to be singing. It's going to be teaching. What we do here is we want to dive into the Word of God because we believe the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So what my philosophies and ideas or what your professor's philosophies and ideas or any man-made philosophies, ideas, I'm going to submit to you just really aren't all that important to me. They're not all that important to us tonight. What I want to walk away with tonight is for you to hear God's voice through his word speaking into your life, convicting you, encouraging you, challenging you. I was talking to a young lady Monday, Monday on Labor Day. She was over and we were having a good conversation. She was a freshman and she said, I'm really having trouble making friends. It's not that I'm having trouble meeting people. I'm meeting lots of people, but I don't really have friends. And my guess is, and I told her, I don't think you're alone. You meet lots of people day in, day out, on campus, in the dorms, uh, around the church, wherever it is. But how many real friends do you have? I got to thinking, why is that such an intrinsic longing in our life? In other words, what is it that simultaneously on one hand drives an independent, free, low-ranger mentality? I don't want to be dependent on anyone or anything. And on the other side, on the other hand, craves community, longs for fellowship, longs for true relationships and friendships. And there's so many just surface level Aren't there? You sit down with somebody at lunch and you talk about surface level things, but deep down we crave real relationship. We crave real community. I want to ask the question tonight, what does real community, what does real community look like in an age of isolation? See, ever since 17th century Europe and the enlightenment and the age of reason, we become increasingly lonely. We become increasingly separated. We become increasingly autonomous. So what are friendships? What are real friendships? look like in an age of autonomy. Have you ever wondered that or thought about that? I would guess that that young lady's feelings aren't unique to her. I'll guess that many of you sitting in here tonight have felt that way or are feeling that way right now. Further, further to add to that, the age that you are right now could easily be the most independent ever for you. 
Think about it. You're free from so many things. Many of you are unmarried, you're unemployed, you're unhindered, and you're utterly untied down by most of the things that you will be later in life. And make no mistake, those things that you'll be tied down by, mortgages and marriages, those are good things, awesome things, things of God. But you are at a time where you can be, where you can afford to be, at least humanly speaking, more independent. You have the opportunity, I'm going to submit to you tonight, to use those freedoms, to use that time, or to abuse that age in your life. Okay? It's unique to the time that you are. And so this semester, we're going to explore true fellowship and interactions in our church bodies, in our smaller cross-life group, by looking at what Scripture says about these kind of issues. Is Scripture sufficient? Amen, it's sufficient. Does Scripture speak into these kind of things? Yes, it speaks into these kind of things. So let's figure out what it says about these kind of things. You might be wondering, where does the title Alone Together, where does the series Alone Together come in? It actually comes from a rock band called Fallout Boy. One of their songs is called Alone Together. Let me read it to you. I don't know where you're going, but do you got room for one more troubled soul? I don't know where I'm going, but I don't think I'm coming home. And I said, I'll check in tomorrow if I don't wake up dead. This is the road to ruin. We're starting at the end. Say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be alone together. Yeah. We could stay young forever. Yeah. We'll stay young, 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 young. The lyrics keep getting better and better. It goes on from there. Uh, 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 oh. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, oh. Uh, 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 oh. Uh, 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 oh. You get it. Okay. By now you probably figured out our title didn't come from the Fallout Boys. Okay. I don't know where they're going. And uh, if they're on the road to ruin, I don't want to get on that crazy train. I, don't want, I want to know where I'm going in life. I want to have some direction, some purpose, some goals. Alone Together is also the title of a book written by Sherry Turkle, who's a specialist in, uh, soci- uh, in society and in technology at MIT. She writes some really insightful things in a book. I want to read you just a brief excerpt. She says this, Facebook, Twitter, Second Life. Do you guys know what Second Life is? Virtual reality that millions and millions of people log and live into. We can have relationships and build things and earn money. Like a living virtual reality world, a second life, if you will. Facebook, Twitter, second life, smartphones, robotic pets, robotic lovers. 30 years ago, we asked what we would use computer for, what a computer for. Now the question is, what don't we use them for? Now through technology, we create, we navigate, and we perform our emotional lives. We shape our buildings, Winston Churchill argued, then they shape us. The same is true of our digital technologies. Technology has become the architect of our intimacies. Online, we face a moment of temptation, drawn by the illusion of companionship without the demands of intimacy. We conduct risk-free affairs on Second Life and confuse the scattershot postings on Facebook with authentic communication. And now we're promised sociable robots that will marry companionship with convenience. It's clever wording, isn't it? You can tell she's a good writer, but what does that mean? What does that mean? I agree with Sherry and what she's writing. Let me go on. Technology promises to let us do anything from anywhere with anyone, but it also drains us as we try to do everything everywhere. We begin to feel overwhelmed and depleted by the lives technology makes possible. We may be free to work from anywhere we are also prone to being lonely 
everywhere. In a surprising, twi in a surprising twist, relentless connection leads to a new solitude. We turn to new technology to fill the void, but as technology ramps up, our emotional lives ramp down. As far as I can tell, Miss Turkle, not a Christ follower, but she has some really insightful things to say about technology, doesn't she? And by the way, technology is not the enemy. I enjoy technology, I use technology often, but her observations about technology and, soci and sociology are helpful. I think it bears weight in thinking about what we're going to talk about tonight. If the title doesn't come from there primarily, or if it doesn't come from the fallout, boys, where does it come from? Let's take the word alone. Listen, we as Christians, Scripture tells us, in 1 Peter, Peter 2.11, says this, Beloved, I urge you as, catch this, aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. Hebrews 11 on your note sheet there says a similar thing. The point is this. If you're a Christ follower, this world is not your home. You're a pilgrim passing through. So there's a real sense in which you can feel very alone. If you're on campus, if you're at a coffee shop, if you're around the world, if you've traveled at all, you can feel very, very alone as a Christ follower. Now, we're privileged here. There's Many of you in here tonight, maybe you don't feel as alone, but there's a very real sense. Many of you know what I'm talking about, which you walk the road as a Christian, seemingly alone. But we're alone together. Together. We draw on the word fellowship a lot. What is fellowship? Fellowship or partnership or sharing. We find a word in Scripture, one word, that we translate two words. The word is all alone, and it means one another. One another. We're going to talk about this word later on, but there's a very real sense in which we as Christians belong together. We belong in places like this where we worship, where we raise our voices in song, where we sit under teaching. So we are alone together. And God knows this, by the way. He wired us this way. Many of you will remember back to last year when we studied Imago Day and we talked about Genesis 1.27, where it talks about God creating us. He says this, so God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Man and woman, he created them. So if God created us in his image, what does that mean? It means that God, the triune God of the universe, three in persons, one in essence, is a God of communion. He's a God of fellowship. And he exists perfectly without any need, by the way, for you and I, in fellowship for all of eternity's past, in the Godhead. God has perfect communion and harmony within himself. And he has so for all time. I don't think it should be surprising then, since God created us, do we have a need? Yes, for community, for fellowship, for sharing, for partnership among one another, among each other. But our greatest need, listen to this, our greatest need is to have that need met and established in God, first and foremost. It must be met in God, first and foremost must be very careful as we address our need for one another, as our need to be in the church and a reciprocal love of the body. We must guard our minds from becoming me, myself, and I centered. Even us centered. I believe to some degree that racquetball club, that football, that ROTC, that the arts floor in South Hedges meet to some degree, not in a permanent degree, but meet our need to be around one another, don't they? But to help us understand our need. I want to look at what Scripture says, because these things are only temporary. If we don't find our need 
for communion, if we don't find our need for fellowship first in God, all these other things are vain. Teachers sometimes describe this relationship as a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with man. I think this picture has its limitations, but it's helpful as we think about horizontal relationships within this room and vertical relationship with God. So I want you to see, I want myself to see our need for belonging, fellowship, community, and the ability to meet these needs found in our relationship with God and others tonight. So that's the goal. Are you ready? Would you pray with me that God would prepare our hearts for tonight's lesson? Father, we can be in such a hurry to go, to move, to sing, to work, that we forget to even ask for your help. God, prepare our hearts tonight. God, would these rich truths from your words sink into our lives, would they impact the way we think, feel, move, interact with you and with one another. God, use us. Use your word in our lives. Tonight we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to open up to Mark 12. Mark chapter 12. Okay, your Bible has two main parts, Old Testament, New Testament. Mark is in the New Testament. So back third of the Bible. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Then it goes to Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And start in verse 28 with me. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, with all the love, and to, or with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifice. When Jesus said, or when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently or wisely, he said to him, "You're not far from the kingdom of God." After that, no one would venture to ask him. That's Jesus. Ask him any more questions. People love controversy, don't they? I mean, for as long as controversy's been around, people flock to it. You want people to come to something, cause controversy. When someone comes into town causing controversy, people are necessarily going to flock there. This is no different. This is Passion Week. If you're not familiar with the term Passion Week, it's this. It's the week preceding or leading up to Christ's crucifixion. Okay, so on Monday, he enters into Jerusalem and he cleanses, or he uh, he cleans the temple. It's the second time, by the way, in Jesus' ministry that he cleans the temple. Way back in John 2, at the beginning of his ministry, we also read that he cleansed the temple. You remember what they told him there? Jesus, if you do this again, if you come in here with whips, if you drive everybody else, if you cleanse this temple again, we're going to kill you. He comes back and he does it again. Monday has these interactions. Friday, they crucify him. We find ourselves smack dab in the middle of that on a Wednesday. And Jesus had many controversial conversations on this Wednesday in the temple. He's debated with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodian, the scribes, the lawyers, all these people. And now they want to put him to death. They want to cause him uh, 
they want the people to be angry at them, so they're trying to draw him out, trying to make him say something that's going to fire up the people. So he's in Jerusalem. He's caused this ruckus. He's caused this controversy. He'd given several parables highlighting. You know what a parable is? It's a short story that illustrates a point. Sometimes we say an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he'd use these parables to help the people of Israel, the Jews, God's chosen people, he'd help use these parables to help them see they were in deep trouble. And now they were mad, which, by the way, wasn't an unusual thing for people to be mad at Jesus. And now he's saying they're going to deny that he's the Messiah. That is the one the Old Testament prophets said would come. If you're not familiar with all these terms or all this language, Jesus was born ethnically a Jew. God's chosen people, just like it was prophesied he would. And he lived a ministry, three lives, and we're coming right to the end of that life. At the end of all this testing, there's one last test that a scribe or a Pharisee steps up to answer. And he asks him, what's the most important of all, Jesus? What he's doing essentially is asking, in those times the Pharisees, the scribes, the legalists of the day, they had divided 613 laws. One for every letter of the Ten Commandments. So 613 letters in the Ten Commandments, they'd made 613 laws. 248 of those laws were affirming laws or positive laws, do this. 365 of those laws were negative commands. Don't do this. One for every day of the year. And they're saying, Jesus, summarize all these laws. Take these Ten Commandments, these 613 commandments, and summarize them into one. Do you see what he did? Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here Jesus affirms what the Jews already knew. They knew that God was one. This statement is called the Shema. It comes from Old Testament, Old uh, Hebrew Bible. The Jews, the devout Jews, the passionate Jews would say this or sing this every morning and night. So he was affirming the fact that he was orthodox in his belief, in his dealings with Scripture. What he means to do here is show the top legal dogs of the day that he knew the Scriptures. He knew what he was talking about. And he says in verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he quotes here Deuteronomy 6.5. He delineates first who God is, which God he's talking about, and then he gives a very complete, a very holistic sort of statement about what our attitude, what our conduct, what our feelings ought to be toward God. He delineates it in four ways. He says his heart. That's the core of one's personal being. He says his soul. It's the closest we would come to what we would deem emotion or feeling. With all your mind, this one doesn't bear or need much description, all your mind, all your intellect, all your thinking, all your reasoning capacities, all your intellect. With all your strength, with all your power or might, ability. It's not so much that he's taking these four things and trying to separate into four circles, strength, mind, uh, uh, intellect, or strength, mind, heart, soul. What he's doing is trying to give us a big picture of what it looks like to love God with great intensity and passion and desire. Love God wholly, holistically, collectively. In fact, in fact, in fact, this is the universal test of a Christian, isn't it? Christians, Christ followers, little Christ, they love God. Scripture over and over again affirms this. In the last verse of a book called 1 Corinthians, Paul, the author, writes this. 
Anyone who does not love the Lord is to be accursed. Paul draws a line, black and white. In another book he writes, in Ephesians 6, 24, in the last verse of that one, he says, Grace and peace to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Do you see the dividing line he's drawn here? Christians love God. And those who don't love God aren't Christians. Cannot be more clear in Scripture. It's true, isn't it, that many people know who God is. It's true, isn't it, that demons know very much about God and truth. And it's true, isn't it, that demons do not love God, nor worship Him, nor follow Him. The universal test of a Christian, catch this, is one who loves God. Do you love God? Do you love God? Last year we had a study, as I mentioned earlier, Imago Dei was called, it means image of God. And we talked primarily about who God was. We spent a whole year talking about the character and the attributes of God. So we knew who God was and who we could love Him. This year we go to a study called Alone Together. And if you were, if you wanted to, you could divide the Ten Commandments into six and four. The first four commandments are truths, commands affirming our relationship toward God. The last six commands are truths affirming our relationship towards one another. Does that make sense to you? Six and four. And so this year we venture into those six, if you will, commands as we look at what it looks like to be around one another, to fellowship with one another, to love one another. Verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And here Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18. The lawyer asks for one summary statement. Why does Jesus give him two? Any ideas? He asks for one summary statement. Jesus gives him two. You can see why I'm hesitant to create too much of a dichotomy between the vertical relationship, us with God, and our horizontal relationship amongst one another here. Jesus joins, he welds, he joins these two commands together. They're inseparable. It's an inescapable truth of these two commandments that you should not have one without the other. Let me say it a better way. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot say, I love God, and on the other hand say, I don't love his people. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see cannot love God whom he has not seen. Excuse me. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. Scripture calling someone a liar? Yeah, he says, John the writer here says, if you love God, if you say you love God, but you hate his children, you're a liar. He says you can't do that. These two are so closely joined together. So I'm consistently amazed when I ask someone, do you love God? Like, are you a Christian? Are you a Christ follower? Oh, yeah, I love God. I've loved God since I was little. Well, do you want to, come, do you want to worship? Do you want to be around his people? Nah, I, don't, I don't really make time for that. I'm not really high on that. I'm not really hot on that. My church is the mountains. I want to be alone. Do you see what a contradiction in terms that is? It'd be like this. I'm going to a wedding on Saturday. It'd be like someone walking up to the groom and saying, Man, I really, I just love you. I appreciate you. I just want to be around you. But your bride, I'm not so crazy about her. You know, like I don't even, 
when we hang out, can she just not be there? Like, can she not show up? Do you know how offended he would be? Do you know how offended I would be if some of you came up, if someone one of you came up and said that in front of my wife? Listen, the reason I make that parallel is because God loves his church. And in scripture, we see, we see this kind of imagery. Christ is the husband, his church is the bride. And you can be sure, brothers and sisters, those of you who follow Christ, that Christ loves his church. He loves you with love inexpressible. And so for someone to say, I love God, but I don't love his people, is a lie. I want to talk about two common hindrances, two common hindrances to people loving one another, to loving their neighbors. The first is this. There's a thing we call low self-esteem, low self-love. Many people would say this is the problem, that you need to love yourself more before you can love other people. Have you heard that? Many people, even in Bozeman, teach this. You need to love yourself more. You need to be more crazy about yourself. The reason you don't love people enough is because you don't love yourself. Scripture, fortunately, helps us with this. In Ephesians 5.26, Paul writes, No one ever hated his own flesh. 5.29, excuse me, no one ever hated his own flesh. But he nourishes it and cherishes it. Listen, who did you get out of bed this morning? Right? Who did you get dressed? Who did you feed today? Who did you comb your hair? Whose eyebrows did you pluck? I hope women. Those things are good, by the way. I'm not saying that you should neglect those things. But you take care of yourself, don't you? Why? Because you need to. You have plenty of self-love. So Jesus says, love your neighbor just as you love yourself. The problem, friends, is not self-love. Excuse me, the problem, I should say, is not lack of self-love. The problem is too much self-love. If we could love, if we could love other people as much as we love ourselves, we'd be in pretty good shape, wouldn't we? Yeah. The second is this, and if I were to be honest, this is far more common. Far more common, it's this. Listen, I want to love people, I want to be around people, but I'm just far too busy. Busy, busy, busy. I have far too much going on. See, I'm a pretty busy person. And our day is pretty cool to be busy, isn't it? I got a lot going on. I got, I got things to do. I got people to see. Listen, I don't want to be unsympathetic. I know from experience that college is difficult. Listen, I know I've been there. I've been sitting in that seat. I've been in your shoes. I know that this can be a demanding time, a trying time, particularly for those of you who this is all new to. You're just stepping in. You're just getting the routine down. But I just... Can I just as compassionately as I say, as I can say, I don't believe you? Listen, if you have 24 hours in a day, you have the same 24 hours that everyone else does. That's 168 hours in a week. Let's say you're taking a 15 credit load. 15 credits. Let's say you take two hours. They say it's going to take you two hours for every one credit hour. So 15 plus 30 is 45. So if we take 45 out, that leaves us with around 100, 130-ish. Um, let's say we take seven hours a week or seven hours a night of sleep, which is more than a lot of you get, I realize that. Seven hours a, a night, we multiply that by seven, seven days a week. That's another 49. You know what that takes us to? 74 hours. So what are you going to do with your 74 hours? I don't, listen, I don't mean to be harsh or critical, but I just wonder, when you say you're busy, 
When you say you're too busy to be with God's people, to be with the church, to be around people who love and want to worship God, what do you mean by that? <clears throat> Colin, I have a video I'd love for you to throw up there and show that I sent to you earlier. Would you do that for me? You're not a student first. I interact with students all the time who are either parroting what their mom and dad have told them or they're saying from their own personal conviction, I gotta remember I'm a student first. We're talking about their involvement in ministry or whatever, how they're spending their time with that guy. They say, I gotta remember I'm a student first. And that's reasonable in one sense because it is their primary vocation right now. Somebody's paying bukus of money for you to go to school and you have four years where you're gonna give yourself to studying whatever you're going to move forward in vocation. I understand that, but I am 10,000 times a Christian. Before I'm a student, before I ever think student, I think Jesus. He is my identity, and now whatever I do, whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, I do it all to the glory of God. And therefore, if I can zoom out enough, my four years as a student fit into this broader context of what my identity and purpose look like as a Christian, and I say, should I go to college? Why or why not? And when I decide to go to college, because whatever I'm doing, whether I'm eating or drinking or studying, I'm doing it all to the glory of God, I look at those four years and see how they fit into the broader vision that, that God is using me in his kingdom for, so that if I'm choosing a major, I'm choosing it with the identity of Christian in mind, and however that's gonna play out. When I think about how I use my time during the day and how I study and how often I go to class and how I engage other people, it's because I'm a Christian before it's because I'm a student. Does that resonate to you, with you? Does that make sense to you? I just had him say it because I think he can say it far better than I can say it. <laughs> but listen, I just want to remind you, don't hear what I'm not saying. Listen, excel at school. Work hard at school for the glory of God. Go to class. Work hard, don't miss class. But can I just say, be a Christian first? What if? What if you chose to structure other things in life around time with God? What if you seriously took that concept to heart? What if you said, these times with God, my time in the Word in the morning, my time with other believers in the local church, my time with other people who follow Christ is so important to me that I'm going I'm to schedule other things in life around those things so I make those things work and fit. And listen, if you're not in a community group, if you miss a Thursday, don't feel for a second like I'm going to call you and threat. I don't want you to get that impression. I just want you to remember priorities. Really, priorities. Think about this. You're not too busy. You're not too busy to obey God. Okay. This is where, by the way, the one and others of Scripture help us. There's a, a huge list of one another's in scriptures. I mentioned the word that God uses in the original language earlier. It's the word all alone. shows up 58 times in the New Testament. In 48 of those times, it's referring to how Christians ought to treat one another. How we ought to interact with one another. Are you with me? 
So that's where we're going to spend our time this semester. That's what we're going to talk about this semester. Next week, we'll look at this command more in depth. We'll flesh out what it means to love one another. We'll also talk about speaking the truth to one another, being at peace with one another, the values and difficulties of healthy and awesome dating and marriage-type relationships, bearing one another's burdens, regarding one another more highly than yourself, serving one another, sex in and outside of marriage, motivating one another, encouraging one another, and, and many more. We're going to talk about what does this horizontal relationship look like starting with the vertical relationship. No Christian, no Christian can function, function extensively or entirely alone. You must be around other believers. Your sanctification, in part, depends on your involvement with other believers. I don't think Scripture could be more clear on this point. I will read to you from an article that I found really helpful. I printed some off in the back. It'll be on Facebook. It'll be on Cross Life's Facebook page if you want to catch the rest of this article. But it says this, six things every freshman needs to know. And Sammy Rhodes uh, wrote this. I think it's helpful. Here's number two. It says this, community isn't optional. It's essential. More specifically, I mean Christ-centered community on campus. In other words, you'll need friends who love and listen to Jesus. Friends who love you enough to say hard things. It takes time to find those friends. More than time, it takes persistence, stubbornness even. You have Christ and you need community. It's not either or, it's both and. No one says it better than Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together. And then he quotes Bonhoeffer. This quote's on your sheet. It says this, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community be aware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into, void, into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. That's a good quote, isn't it? And this gives me a chance, just a brief chance to address another issue or a ditch or a danger I don't want us to dive into this semester. I've seen some Christians so dependent on what we call accountability or a mentor that they can't read the Word by themselves. They think they can't read the Word by themselves. So we need to be around one another, but don't hear me saying that you can't independently do anything spiritual. If you come to Cross Life, if you go to a church Sunday morning, if you get in a community group, listen, those things are supplemental and they come alongside of your very own time in the Word that I hope you're having daily. You don't need a mentor to read your Bible, okay? You can't depend on those Thursday nights, just on these Thursday nights to get you through the week. I hope it's a help to you, by the way, but it's not the end, okay? So the goal of peering into the captivation to the, to the beauty of these one another's in Scripture it isn't to minimize the need for you to be reading and soaking in God's Word daily. It isn't to minimize your need to be telling your roommates and your friends about Jesus on a one-on-one -on -one level or inviting them to come with you. It's not to minimize your need to cultivate healthy and consistent prayer in your life. Are you with me? Okay. Sammy continues. He says this, Community on campus is good. The wise, diverse, multi-generational, pastor-led community of the local church is better. This feels like a good time to remind you that the church isn't a place. It's a people. As a Christian, you're already part of it. You don't go to church. You are the church. That means you aren't being yourself if you aren't involved in gospel-centered, 
Bible-believing, Christ-exalting local church. Finding one is typically easy. Committing yourself to one is the hard part. Amen? And listen, I don't say this to tick you off, but I know the reality is it ticks a lot of you off. Why do I know that? Because when someone said that to me, it ticked me off when I was in college. I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that the predominant view in and amongst our age group, your age group, is independence, autonomy. I don't need you. It takes humility to admit the fact that you do need a pastor-led community in the local church. You need community on campus. You need one another. Do you need God first? Amen. Hallelujah. You need God. You need that need met in God first. Okay? This isn't, you don't come here to play racquetball. I'm not hating on racquetball. I enjoy racquetball. But if you're doing those things outside of God, you're missing it. You're missing it. Okay? So please don't hear me say that you shouldn't be around people who don't believe exactly what you believe. Jesus wasn't, was he? No, in fact, sinners were attracted to the person of Jesus. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. But Jesus was around people who were outcasts, wasn't he? And so don't hear me say don't spend time around people who don't believe the same thing as you. But listen, the people who speak truth into your life, who say influential things to you, they ought to be Christ-centered believers. Okay? By the way, I realize that there's always people here who this is the first time you have anything, exposure to Christ. I know there's people who have been here who this is the first time they see a Bible. Maybe you're testing Jesus like the scribe. Maybe you're wondering, who is this guy? What is this like? Let me just say I'm glad you're here because I think the Word of God has something to say to you. Matter of fact, I know it does. Look at verse 32. The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is the one and there's no other besides him. Verse 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Was the scribe having a change in heart? Maybe he was. I think he was. Personally, I think he saw Christ answer wisely and he said, man, what this guy's saying is true. He realized that the ceremonial law, that Christ was going to fulfill that. He realized that more important than the ceremonial law, than the outward things, was the inward attitude. He realized that he needed, he realized, I think he was beginning to realize that the law in itself wasn't going to do it. Verse 34, he said, when Jesus saw this, or saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Listen, some of you in here tonight, you may not be far from the kingdom of God. Jesus issues an encouragement to the scribe, but a challenge. This is a good thing, by the way, that he says to him, but it's not good enough. It's close, but it's not close enough. By the very fact that he's saying you're close means the fact that the scribe isn't in. I can't help but wonder, I can't help but wonder if that's not where many of you are here tonight. You're on the outside looking in and you're close. You're close to the kingdom of God. But you're trying to get there through the law. You're trying to get there through self-righteousness. So it's interesting. There's one other place in Scripture other than the parallel account of this in Matthew. There's one other place in Scripture, and I want you to go there with me, that we find Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 linked together. It's in Luke chapter 10. So you're in Mark. Go over one book to the right to Luke and go to chapter 10. 
I'm just going to touch on this because honestly, I don't want to spoil it. This is what you're going to study this week in community groups. Is Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up, and this is a different account, or this is a different circumstance. You'll see that. But a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus teaches a parable. You're familiar with the parable, perhaps, of the Good Samaritan. He teaches him a parable to illustrate who's his neighbor. But did you catch the phrase there? The lawyer wanted to justify himself. Why did Jesus go to the law? Why? I submit to you it's because Jesus wanted this lawyer to see there has never been a time in his life where he has perfectly loved God with all his soul, all his strength, all his heart, and all his might. Never. There's never been a time. And there's never been a time that I have done that perfectly. And there's never been a time that you've done that perfectly. Why does Jesus use the law? He uses the law to expose sin. New Testament tells us over and over again, that's why the law came in, to increase transgression. That people would see as they hold their life up against the law, you should see, man, there's never been a time that I've loved God the way God deserves to be loved. I have fallen short in every impulse, in every moment of my life. And instead of, instead of falling at Jesus' feet in repentance, he seeks to justify himself. Listen, that's bad news for you and for me. The fact that if we follow this perfectly, we would have life. The fact is, you're never going to follow it perfectly, neither am I. That's bad news. That means that we have sinned against a holy God, and that means he will punish that sin. Can I tell you the good news? I would love to tell you the good news. The good news is that when Jesus walked this earth, there was never a time where he did not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. With every impulse of his being, there was never a time where he did not love God the Father, God the Spirit with all of his heart. He fulfilled this law perfectly, and he's the only one who's ever done it. He's the only one who ever will. So where do you stand? Are you trying to find your own righteousness or are you looking to the righteous one? Commands, beautiful commands that guide believers and they are put before us to convict us of our sin and to point us towards Christ. Galatians 1.19 says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Can you say it's no longer John who lives? It's no longer fill in the blank. Look down at your name tag. Can you say it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and I live, he lives in me by faith? I entered in by faith, not by obeying the law, because you'll never be able to obey the law. It's too heavy. It's too weighty. And it's meant to point you towards the person of Christ. Listen, I'm glad that you're here. It probably shows some level of interest in your life. But if you're here, like this scribe, to question Christ, if you're close 
but not in. I want to urge you, enter in by faith. Enter in by faith. What does real community look like in an age of isolation? That's the question we set out to answer, wasn't it? What does it look like? It looks like loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Will you ever do that perfectly? No. But he sets that before us as a summary of the command, a summary of the law, as a direction for us as believers to press into. What does loving your neighbor as yourself look like? What does loving others look like? You have to come back next week to find out. That's what we're going to talk about then. Okay. Listen, we've covered a lot of ground. So let me try and sum this up. Let me try and wrap this up. I've put this on your note sheets as well. We've traveled some ground. So let's try and wrap this up. One, fellowship love for others flows from and is born out of a love from God. We must start there. Did you get that? Again, this isn't just some club. We must start with a vertical relationship with God. Loving one another, as we're going to find out next week, flows out of that. Two, you cannot say you love God and hate other believers. You cannot say you love God and not love his children. Listen, to do this is a lie. Three, in order to really love and practice loving your neighbor, you need to actually be around them. Do you get that? On campus, at Cross Life, in your church, you need to be around them to actually practice this. Four, priorities. Priorities. Five, you've been set up. You've been set up by the law. You've been shown your shortcoming. What will you do? What are you going to do with this? You're going to work a little bit harder next week. You're going to go obey the law. Hope to obey it a little bit closer. Hope you're a little bit more righteous next week. Are you going to rely on your righteousness or are you going to turn to the only one who is righteous? Because the difference between those two options is of eternal significance. You can lean on yourself and you find out you will always fall short. Friend, you and I will always fall short. You must turn to Christ. You must turn to Christ. I compel you, I urge you, I beg you, turn to Christ. Find joy, find life by faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, it's your word. Do do a work in our lives through it. Implant these things in our mind. Don't don't let them just leave as we go from here and interact as, as we fellowship. Lord, let these things stick in our mind. God, I beg that you change me by your word, through your spirit, that you continue to conform me, us, all of us, more towards the image of your son, that you might help us to love you with more of ourselves that we might set you before us as the ultimate object of our love, that we'd be more devoted to you. But God, thank you. Thank you that Christ loved you perfectly. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for his righteousness. May we bask in that. May we rejoice in that. And may we sing that truth with all of our hearts now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.